Well, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of June 25th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, obviously today, that is to say Friday the 24th, was a uh, very grim day here in the no longer quite so united states of fucking America with the Supreme Court overturn of Roe versus Wade. And uh, we will return the discussion in the upcoming weeks to the very challenging situation here on our own shores. But tonight we are looking once again at Ukraine. Uh, there's an important book that I need to discuss, Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, From Marketization to Armed Conflict, by Yulia Yurchenko, published in 2018 by Pluto Press in the United Kingdom. And Yulia Yurchenko is associated with the group Social Movement, or if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Sotsialny Ruk, a Ukrainian opposition group of the um, socialist left, which before the, uh, the Russian invasion had actually been protesting the policies of the Ukrainian government, the so-called desocialization, the privatization of land and industrial assets and so on, and the uh, consolidation of oligarchic rule. And uh, again, this book was written in 2018, so um, midway between the outbreak of the war in 2014 and the full-scale invasion that we see now. So just before the incumbent Volodymyr Zelensky was elected and when uh, his predecessor Poroshenko was in power. Now, the important thing about this book is that it defies categorization in either of the two ossified and polarized narratives, as they are called, <coughs> about Ukraine, this notion that anyone who opposes the Russian aggression is automatically, uncritically in the Western camp and looking to the U.S. and the EU and NATO as the great protectors, and vice versa, that anyone who is critical of the West is looking to Putin as some kind of uh, anti-imperialist liberator and some kind of alternative. Yulia Yurchenko is really taking a rigorous neither East nor West position in this book, as we shall see, which, of course, is kind of heretical for both sides. But this book proves that this was still at least possible as late as um, 2018. Now, is it still possible, as things have only become more polarized since the invasion began? Well, we'll examine that question after we discuss her analysis in the book and do a little reading from it. Okay, just a little criticism to get out of the way up front. Uh, this book, while only some 200 pages, was not an easy read. It's got, uh, you know, these kind of turgid very long sentences that can be a little bit stilted and sometimes not quite grammatical when you really parse them out. Now, uh, no translator is listed, 
So I'm assuming that uh, Yulia was writing in English, and I assume that it is not her native tongue, because she's Ukrainian. So yeah, that's something to take into consideration. But, you know, given that it was incumbent upon Pluto Press to have done a, uh, you know, a heavier edit and to turn it into easier prose. And on top of that, there's a certain amount um, of, uh, you know, leftist and academic jargon going on, which makes it even more difficult, again, as we shall see. But um, with that minor criticism out of the way, let's just move on and um, see what she has to say. Now, in uh, Yurchenko's portrayal, the West does indeed bear some responsibility for the current crisis. Going all the way back to the early 90s, when it connived in the whole sleazy process of the uh, post-communist transition, which she documents, in which elements of both the uh, so-called the nomenklatura of the old regime and, uh, you know, criminal elements from the, the mafias that had emerged in the period of Soviet decay became the new oligarchic class in Ukraine. In what she calls a criminal political nexus, and she especially discusses the critical role of what she calls financial industrial groups, or FIGs, under the uh, control of regional oligarchs as uh, you know, central authority began to erode. And eventually, as East-West rivalry began to reemerge under Putin, uh, Russia started to you know, sort of politically cultivate the um, figs based in the Donbass region. And this really became, you know, the, uh, the earliest seed of the current conflict. She particularly names in this context one Renat Akhmatov, industrial oligarch of the Donbass and a key supporter of Viktor Yanukovych, the corrupt Russia-leaning president who would be overthrown in the Maidan Revolution of 2014. She does not mention that um, Akhmatov had contracted the services of Paul Manafort, the American veteran lobbyist for foreign dictators, who would become a leading political advisor for Donald Trump. And Manafort would also be contracted by Yanukovych himself, briefly reminding us of how the Ukrainian mess intersects with the... uh, crisis of democracy here in the USA. And Yurchenko was especially critical of the um, DCFTA, the Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Area Agreement between uh, Ukraine and the European Union, which um, sparked the trouble in 2014 when Yanukovych ditched the treaty just before it was to be signed, that actually happened in 2013, and instead opted for a so-called action plan with Putin, calling for a closer integration with Russia. Of course, the um, DCFTA would be um, revived after the ouster of Yanukovych. It took effect in 2017, renamed the European Union-Ukraine Association Agreement. And as we shall see, you know, Yurchenko, while um, by no means cutting any slack for Yanukovych or Putin, uh, is also very critical of the DCFTA. 
and, uh, you know, generally takes a uh, <clears throat> neither nor position towards, you know, the uh, oligarchic regimes in Kiev and Moscow alike. Imagine that. All right, I'm going to do a little bit of reading just from the uh, the opening pages of the book. All right, so she's writing here, I guess, in uh, 2017, the year before it was published, from the text, with brief commentary interjected here and there. <clears throat> Three years into its deepest crisis since the demise of the USSR, Ukraine is on the brink of yet another Maidan, a reference to the Maidan Revolution, of 2014, as well as uh, earlier protest movements um, centered in Maidan Square, about which more later. Weakened by civil armed conflict, corrupt state administration apparatus, and paralyzed by the excesses of the debt burden, Ukraine's economy is showing few signs of recovery, while it continues to accumulate loans with increasingly draconian structural adjustment requirements. Simultaneously, the living standard, poverty, and inequality are at their worst to date. The combination of ill-prescribed market transition reforms, loaned funds mismanagement and misappropriation by the kleptocratic ruling bloc have resulted in a toxic debt dependency that has become a tool for manipulation in the renewed geopolitical confrontation between Russia and the USA slash EU. Debt geopolitics in the context of the deep and comprehensive free trade areas, DCFTA negotiations, have cost Ukraine its residual de facto sovereignty and at the same time continue to undermine possibilities for stabilization of the geopolitical order. Ukraine is stuck in a vice of authoritarian neoliberal kleptocracy with fascistization tendencies, by which I assume she means tendencies towards fascism, although her word fascistization is something of a neologism. Further implementation of DCFTA means more austerity, more inequality, more privatization, and fewer support mechanisms for everyday social reproduction via access to health care, child care, education, affordable utilities, and food. The privatization of land and the reprivatization of fracking fields also means an ecological catastrophe. The liberalization on exports of timber to the EU already spells the destruction of the Carpathian centuries-old forests for short-term economic gain. Debt has become a geopolitical tool in Ukraine's foreign relations. Exploration of the post-2014 extremes of foreign debt dependency show that the latter, in the context of the kleptocratic neoliberal regime, has led to an effective erosion of Ukraine's sovereignty that by now barely hinges upon the dangerous rhetoric of patriotism, that is, the infusion of right-wing sentiment as a defense mechanism against any criticism of the shaky oligarchic kingdom. And of course, 
it's not literally a kingdom. She's using that term metaphorically. So, rather unsparing criticism of the situation in Ukraine at that time, a few paragraphs later, she turns her attention to Russia. The expansion of the global capitalist system to the post-Soviet space since the early 1990s has created a pronounced intensification of transnational class struggles and east-west geopolitical tensions, primarily between the USA and Russia, weakened by the demise of the USSR and later economically strengthened by the industrialized world's dependence on oil and gas, Russia became a state-run oligarchy that entered into a new competition with the USA, this time without a proper ideological component. Since the late 1990s, the Kremlin's aim has been to beat the USA at their own game, the capitalist competition slash world dominance game. That has included, among other aspects, economic, political, and military control over the post-Soviet states, which were slipping away from Moscow's gravitational pull one after another. The Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS, founded in 1991, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, founded in 1992, and the more recent formation of the Eurasian Customs Union in 2008, are some of the examples of Russia's attempts to reestablish and maintain dominance over the space it often used to control directly, even before the formation of the USSR. Well, yes, quite obviously, during the Russian Empire, which was merely inherited by the USSR. The USA's push to spread NATO into Eastern Europe and Russia's military involvement in Transnistria, in Moldova, and Abkhazia, in Georgia, are also part of the Washington-Moscow geopolitical game. The effective manufacturing of frozen conflicts in Moldova and Georgia led some to interpret Putin's annexation of Crimea and the military incursion into eastern Ukraine as a reaction to fears over the expansion of NATO. What advocates of Russia's right to defend its interests fail to acknowledge is that Ukraine is a sovereign state and that Russia's disagreement with its foreign and trade policy choices do not grant the Kremlin rights to violate Ukraine's borders. Nor does it justify the transformation of Russia's mainstream political discourse that since the early 2000s has been based on a bizarre mix of the resurrected and glorified imperial past and reinforced pride over monopolized credit for the Soviet Second World War victory, by which, of course, she means, you know, Russia appropriating all of the credit for the victory in the war, as opposed to, you know, the other Soviet republics which were part of the USSR at that time, such as Ukraine, thank you very much, and Kazakhstan, and so on. The use of the imperial history of ownership of Crimea combined with the need to protect ethnic Russians as a pretext for military incursion into Ukraine, 
speaks of the Kremlin's imperialist ambitions. The rhetoric of geopolitical self-defense is hard to sustain in the light of such diplomacy. And she puts the word diplomacy in quotes, and of course she's using it ironically because it's not diplomacy. <laughs> it's military aggression. And indeed, the imperialist clashes of the West and East extend beyond the post-Soviet states and into the international military and economic arena. The confrontations between Russia and the West slash USA over Libya and Syria in the UN are just some of the many illustrations of those clashes and their recent intensification. In this book, I show how the problematic integration of Ukraine into the global capitalist system has fertilized internal political destabilization while simultaneously fueling geopolitical tensions in the region, thus making the civil and armed conflict possible. End quote. And of course, this year, the, you know, armed conflict has just gotten exponentially worse. But, uh, you know, refreshingly, she's uh, looking at the roots of the armed conflict in terms of political economy, rather than, you know, campism, rather than lining up in either one camp or the other. And I would imagine that, you know, for a lot of, of readers, a lot of, you know, left readers, lefty readers, you know, after reading those opening paragraphs, which are, you know, bashing the political order in uh, in Ukraine, the corrupt neoliberal oligarchy with um, fascisticizing tendencies, you know, readers will be thrown for a loop when, the, when then she goes on to um, defend the sovereignty of Ukraine and to uh, and to bash, uh, you know, Putin's imperialist ambitions. So very, very refreshing. But uh, you know, before we move on to the present day. You know, some more thoughts on the origins of this current crisis back in 2014. Now, uh, she, Yulia Yurchenko, kind of has a mixed view of the Maidan revolution of that year. She sees it as having been betrayed with a new oligarchic regime consolidating, partly due to the protesters' own illusions, particularly about the European Union and the West, and their lack of anti-capitalist analysis, and also partly due to Putin's reaction in invading the Donbass and annexing Crimea, which allowed the recongealed oligarchic regime to exploit nationalism and to consolidate power in the face of a real external enemy. And in my own commentary at the time, I noted that, uh, you know, that same year, 2014, that the uh, protests were going on in Ukraine, there were also protests going on in Italy and Greece and Spain to oppose European Union policies. While the Ukrainian protesters were demanding greater integration with the EU, and Viktor Yanukovych, whose apparent attempt to steal the elections through fraud in 2004, was aborted by a protest mobilization, the Orange Revolution, was uh, then, 2014, the incumbent, having recouped his losses in the 2010 election, 
And as we've noted, the new protest wave was sparked by his scuttling of the uh, you know agreement to establish closer economic and political ties with the EU, the DCFTA. So, you know, there was a certain irony that the Ukraine protesters were seeking closer ties to the European Union, while the Greek, Spanish, and Italian demonstrators were protesting against the EU. So, of course, there was plenty of fodder for all of the, you know, hyperventilation, both in Moscow and in, you know, the so-called left media in the West, about how the Ukrainian protesters were just puppets of the EU and U.S. and NATO. Now, given the context, it was predictable and inevitable that the governments of the West would attempt to cultivate the Ukrainian protesters as pawns. That hardly means that they had no legitimate grievances or that they were, you know, monolithically fascist or CIA astroturf or, you know, all the calumnies that you heard over and over and over back then, and you still hear today about Ukrainians in general, even as a, you know, an actual fascist state is consolidating in Russia, as we have discussed before. I mean, if oligarchic Ukraine had, you know, fascist tendencies with an ultranationalist right being on the rise and so on, you know, I mean, uh, Russia has just gone totally over the edge into actual fascist rule over, certainly over the course of the past year. And there was, you know, actually a perfect logic to the, you know, pro-EU posture of the Ukrainian protesters and the anti-EU position of their Greek and Spanish counterparts. The EU institutionalizes human rights, at least formally, and democracy, at least bourgeois democracy. So greater integration with it would therefore apply some breaks on the consolidation of a dictatorship in Ukraine particularly a dictatorship at that time, that of Yanukovych, which was being backed by Moscow. But the EU also institutionalizes free markets, so-called, and austerity, correctly opposed by the Greek and Spanish working class. And this, you know, seemingly complete absence of solidarity between the Ukrainian protest movement and those within the EU provided a textbook study in the global divide and conquer scam, which is the essence of the state system. And at the time, I was saying that rather than acquiescing in demonization of the Ukrainian protesters as fascists and CIA pawns, progressives in the West should have been seeking to establish a dialogue with them and attempting to work out a common position. And no, not with the ugly elements among their ranks, such as right sector, but the more pro-democratic elements. And right sector was not hegemonic in the movement, contrary to the propaganda, the oversimplified propaganda, which unfortunately just became, you know, ubiquitous in the Western left media. And establishing this kind of a dialogue was impossible without starting from a position of solidarity. And certainly, supporters of the Occupy Wall Street movement 
should have opposed on principle Yanukovych's attempted so-called, you know, dictatorship laws that banned public protest encampments. And such a dialogue was precisely what was needed to break the ubiquitous propagandistic conflation of free markets and democracy. Human rights and social justice are not opposed concepts. They are fundamentally unified, in spite of the official denial of this, both East and West. And we are certainly paying for this lack of solidarity now. And this lack of solidarity continues even now that the stakes are immeasurably higher than they were back in 2014. Now, in terms of uh, Yulia Yurchenko's predictions as to what would happen next back when she was writing four years ago, well, she predicts a so-called third Maidan. The um, second Maidan having been the Maidan Revolution of 2014, of course, and the first Maidan having been the Orange Revolution of 2004, although some would put the first Maidan with the uh, protest in that same square then known as Victory Square, back in um, 1991 against Soviet rule. So she was predicting a, you know, a third Maidan, which she was looking to with both hope and a degree of trepidation. I'm just going to read the, uh, the closing line of the book from the text. The second Maidan has not brought the change that many have already died for, Yet it was only the beginning, not the end, of the dispossessed fighting back. Ukraine is pregnant with the next, more violent Maidan, end quote. But instead of a third Maidan, or fourth Maidan, depending on how you want to look at it, we got the um, full-scale Russian invasion, which has uh, meant a you know, dramatic escalation and polarization of the situation along east-west geopolitical lines, which brings us to the current situation. So how is Yulia's organization, Social Movement, or Sozialny Ruk, viewing things today? Well, back in January, when the troop buildup on Ukraine's borders was getting underway, they ran a statement on their website, which I also ran on my own, Counter Vortex, entitled Time for International Anti-War Solidarity. Uh, there's a passage from it that I've read on this podcast before, but I'm going to read it again from the text. After the collapse of the USSR, only one superpower remained in the world, the United States. But nothing lasts forever, and now its hegemony is declining. U.S. interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq brought catastrophic wars to the peoples of those countries and ended in disgrace for the United States. Unfortunately, the decline of American imperialism has been accompanied not by the emergence of a more democratic world order, but by the rise of other imperialist predators and fundamentalist and nationalist movements. Under these circumstances, the international left, accustomed to fighting only Western imperialism, should reconsider its strategy. 
In recent decades, there has been a revival of Russian imperialism, which is now trying to get the U.S. to redistribute spheres of influence in the world. The facts show that falling into the sphere of influence of Putin's Russia does not bring any good to the people. Right now, this was back in January, Russian troops are in Kazakhstan with the aim of forcefully suppressing the popular uprising there. These actions confirm the reactionary nature of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the Russia-led military bloc of ex-Soviet states, which was created not to protect countries from external aggression, but to strengthen the influence of the Kremlin and to protect unpopular regimes from revolutions. Russian troops in Kazakhstan also protect the interests of both American and British capitalists who own a significant part of the oil industry in Kazakhstan. Russia has played a similar role in the Belarusian protests, which broke out in the summer of 2020, just as the Black Lives Matter uprising was happening here in the United States and was put down very, very harshly by the regime of the long-ruling dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, the Kremlin sent its propagandists to replace the striking media workers and announced the formation of a reserve of security officials to be sent to Belarus. Just like in the 19th century, when the Russian Empire was the gendarme of Europe, the Putin regime is now becoming the roadblock of social and political changes in the post-Soviet space. Any social movement in this territory is forced to think about how not to become an irritant for the Kremlin. We express our gratitude and solidarity to the Russian left-wing activists who oppose the imperialist policies of the Kremlin and who are fighting for democratic and social transformation in their country. Only a revolution in Russia and the overthrow of the Putin regime can bring stability, peace, and security to post-Soviet countries. End quote. Then on the uh, geopolitical tip, the closest that the statement comes to looking for succor from the West is the following text from the very end, from the text. We strive for a peaceful, neutral Ukraine, but for this, the Kremlin must end its aggressive imperialist policy and Ukraine must be provided with security guarantees more serious than the Budapest Memorandum, blatantly trampled by the Russian Federation in 2014. And that, as we shall recall, was the um, 1994 agreement that was signed by Ukraine, Russia, and the West, under which um, Ukraine returned to Russia the many hundreds of nuclear weapons that had been left on its soil after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in exchange for pledges that its um, boundaries and sovereignty would be respected. Returning to the text, not harboring illusions about the policy of Western governments serving big capital and their own goals, we believe that the interest of the Ukrainian working people can be taken into account by them only under the pressure of progressive movements and the public of those countries, end quote. So, social movement, 
Sotsialny Ruk and um, Yulia Yurchenko, if you're the person who actually wrote that text, as I suspect may be the case. Uh, some of us here in the West have been doing our best to rise to the occasion. And what has Yulia Yurchenko had to say since the invasion actually started? Well, there's a certain sense that she's been forced to choose sides. If not quite with the West, then certainly with the Western-backed Ukrainian government. She is certainly very unequivocal in an April 11th interview on Spectre Journal entitled Fighting for Ukrainian Self-Determination. From the text, For Ukrainians, it's an existential fight. Our country's identity, territorial boundaries, and our very existence is under attack right now. So the nationwide solidarity and mobilization in defense of the country has been great despite Russia's overwhelming military advantage. People are not giving up despite the inevitably dehumanizing impact of the war, the sexual violence, the demoralizing images, videos, and stories of the destruction in whole sections of the country. We are turning back the Russian invasion. It's an all-out popular resistance, and that makes you feel very proud. End quote. And before I close, I'm going to note one more statement. Issued on June 10th by a group called Anarchist Black Cross Belarus in Minsk, calling for international solidarity, once again, with the struggle to defeat Vladimir Putin's project of rebuilding the Russian Empire, and urging support for the armed anarchist units in Ukraine, as well as the anti-war protesters in Russia. The statement rejects Putin's exploitation of NATO expansion as a justification for the war and the postmodern irony, quote-unquote, of pointing to Western crimes to justify those of Russia. It sees the necessity, the anarchist Black Cross Belarus statement, sees the necessity of a temporary alliance, quote-unquote, between anarchists and the Ukrainian state until Russia is defeated. Quote, a Russian victory in this war would be a complete disaster, not only for Ukraine, but for all of Eastern Europe and beyond. Whereas the defeat of the Russian army could lead to the fall of Putin and the liberation of Belarus, as well as Kazakhstan and other countries under dictatorships within Moscow's political orbit. End quote. And indeed, yes, there are armed anarchist units fighting in Ukraine. I direct people to a, a recent YouTube video entitled, quote, Ukraine's anti-fascist football hooligans fighting the Russian invasion, <laughs> which has got some uh, footage of these guys looking very kick-ass indeed. Uh, supporters of the Arsenal Kiev football team call themselves the Hoods Hoods clan. And while, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of the uh, Ukrainian uh, football hooligans 
lean towards uh, ultranationalism and fascism. These guys are like uh, explicitly left-wing and anti-fascist and leaning towards anarchism. Very interesting. And meanwhile, of course, contrary to Putin's Orwellian fascist pseudo-anti-fascist propaganda, there are plenty of, you know, fascist paramilitary groups and mercenary outfits fighting on the Russian side, as we've noted over and over again, like Rusich and the Imperial Legion and the Wagner Group and the Night Wolves, etc., etc. So I'm going to close with a um, little historical analogy going back, as I frequently do, to the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s. Now, the anarchist movement in Spain at that time was far more powerful than any in Ukraine or Belarus today. And with the uh, you know fascist uprising of 1936, the anarchists and the bourgeois democratic government in Madrid closed ranks against the common enemy that would crush them both. With tensions between them, certainly, and before the war was even over, the Madrid government would turn on the anarchists and crush them. And some of the more militant and uncompromising anarchists have been warning of exactly this and rejected any compromise or formal alliance with the Madrid government. And the most intransigent of these really hardcore anarchist militants was the legendary Buenaventura de Ruti. And even he was killed in action at the Battle of Madrid in November 1936, leading a column of anarchist volunteers in defense of the city of Madrid, seat of the bourgeois democratic government of Spain. So I am certainly keenly aware of how anarchists have been used and betrayed many times in history as they ultimately were in Spain. And I hope that potentialities can emerge for some kind of revolutionary opening in the current state of deep world crisis, both East and West. But meanwhile, I also know that I am, with no equivocation, avidly rooting for Ukraine in this war. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where I blog every day and rant every week on the podcast about world affairs from a dissident left, anarchist-informed point of view. Please support us on Patreon. Just a dollar per weekly podcast would really help keep us going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.